When God first instituted the government of Israel under Moses, when Moses gave the law, when the children of Israel first came out of Egypt, he basically gave to them, that is God's people, an ultimatum. He said, walk the path that I've laid out before you, and you'll have lasting success. Or, on the other hand, you could turn aside from what I've given to you, And he said the result of that is that you will surely perish. And so God laid out a path for his people, and then he encouraged them to take it. Now, God does the same thing in every generation to those that follow him. He lays out a path, and he encourages us to walk that path, and he says that when you walk it, you'll experience success and blessing. But when we turn aside from it, God promises that things will not work out for us the way that we hoped. Now, essentially, every time you and I make a decision in our lives, we are um, choosing a path. We're making a decision that's going to translate into our destiny or the outcome that we, we face. And we are free to make the choices that we make within this life. And that freedom is something that's been granted by God. However... We are not free to choose the outcome and the consequences of those choices. Those things come to us uh, regardless of the choice that we made for the path that we're on. So to go down any particular road that we choose to go down within our lives, we are then committed to the terrain that that path has and also the destination that it brings us to. Now, one of the advantages that we have of living in a world that's populated by literally billions of people is that before we make a choice that will turn into a destination, we can look around and we can find someone else that has made that decision that we're looking to make, and we can see how their decision has affected their outcome. We can look at someone who's chosen a certain path and we can see how that's translated into their life experience one year or five years or ten years down the line. And we can evaluate if that's something that we want to do based on what we see taking place within their lives. And hopefully, if we're wise, we would do that. Now, if we're really wise, not only will we do that, that is, look at those that are on a road that we're considering taking, But if we're really wise, then we will recognize that the terrain and the consequences that they are facing are not going to be different for us if we choose to go that particular way. Now, what's the point of opening with that illustration example? It's this. That tonight in our Bible study, we're going to see the southern kingdom of Judah fall. They're going to go into captivity and they're going to be dispossessed of the promised land that God promised to Abraham and then gave to his people so richly so many years ago. Judah is going to fall. Now, Israel, the ten tribes that had split off to the north, they have already fallen. They've been gone for over a hundred years at this point. But what makes Judah's failure and fall even worse than the fall of the northern ten tribes is that they will fall the exact same way and for the exact same reasons that Israel fell in the north all those years previously. And had they considered the path that Israel had taken and then the outcome 
that was realized because of that decision, then they might have averted the destiny that they themselves will also have. Now, that translates into our lives as well. When we make decisions and choices, God says, if you choose life and choose the way that I've laid out for you, you'll have success and blessing. But if you turn aside and you disobey, then the outcome for you is going to be failure. And we see the path of life riddled with the corpses of those that have chosen to go against God's ways, and we've seen the outcome for them. And so Judah really should have known. God's ways are God's ways for a reason. He says, I've set before you life and death, blessing and cursing. Therefore, choose life that you might live. And so tonight, the closing chapters of Second Kings, and it's the record of Judah's last kings and their uh, ultimate fall. Now, we studied last week Josiah. The last good king of Israel's um, years, or I'm sorry, of Judah's years, we saw that he reigned for 31 years. And he brought great reform into Israel. But we learned that those reforms didn't take. And the reason why the reforms of Josiah didn't last within the nation were because the idolatry that he removed from the people's houses were then translated into their hearts. The idols were destroyed physically, but what they were worshiping was reestablished in a secret way and in a secret place. Outwardly, the people were becoming more religious, but inwardly, there had been no real transformation. And thus, the time that um, Josiah was on the scene, he was really the life support of the nation. God was holding them together because of the zeal and the commitment of Josiah. But as soon as Josiah was taken off the scene, we're going to see that the nation is going to fall apart. The fabric was weak underneath uh, him without him being there. It will unravel very quickly. Now, Josiah died somewhat untimely. And the reason for that, or at least part of the reason that he died young, is because in his zeal, he interfered with something that God was doing as God was moving amongst the nations. And we'll see uh, some of what that movement was tonight. Now, the background of this last portion of Judah's history is that, first of all, Jeremiah is prophesying at this time. Also, Ezekiel, two big books that we have in the prophecy section of the Bible, and also Daniel, but in a different place uh, is from Jeremiah and Ezekiel. And, and so to have studied this portion of scripture that we're going to see tonight is going to greatly help you as you study Jeremiah to understand what was going on in his life. It's also going to shed some light onto why Jeremiah was called the weeping prophet and why sometimes we hear of Jeremiah that he had very few, if any, converts at all because of the condition of the nation and the condition of the people. Part of the reason why Jeremiah's message was rejected is because the main message that Jeremiah was bringing to the people was that Judah was going to fall captive to the Babylonians. That the Babylonians were going to completely take control over the southern kingdom of Judah. And Jeremiah's message was this. Embrace that. There's nothing that you can do to avert it. You've sown, and now you're going to reap. And if you want to survive, then the course of action for you to take is to embrace the Babylonian captivity. He says to them over and over again, he says, listen, if you just go along with it, then you'll be all right. You'll be given a place to live. Some of you will even be able to stay here during the time, the 70 years that God is going to judge the nation. But if you kick against the judgment, if you rebel and fight, 
then you will certainly perish. And that wasn't a popular message. In fact, it was a treasonous message. It would be very similar to if Billy Graham were tomorrow to say, the United States is going to be overtaken by the Iranians or by the Russians. And thus saith God, give in to it. When the Russians come, don't fight back. Just let them do what they're going to do because it's the hand of God. Now, to say that, our American pride would first of all rise up. We'd say, no way, you know, American sovereignty, we're not going to buckle or give in to the pressure of another nation coming to us. It's our patriotic duty to stand up and fight. And so that message would grate against what we've been taught and what we stand for as a nation. It would also be viewed as treasonous for us to say, oh, well, this is the judgment of God and we're just to allow these people to come in. That would be a bad message. And that's what happened to Jeremiah. He was rejected by the people, and then he was persecuted by the rulers and the leaders because that was his message. Nevertheless, he didn't back down because it was God's message. Now, there is a great power shift going on at this point amongst the outside nations. We have seen, first of all, as we've moved through kings, Syria as a great power constantly. Remember the Ben-Hadads? There was all the Ben-Hadads that the, uh, the Israelites had to fight against because Syria was a great power. But then they were absorbed by the Assyrians, which was a greater empire. And so we read in the last few chapters about how it was the Assyrians that were oppressing and taxing and seeking to invade uh, Israel and Judah. And it was the Assyrians that carried the ten northern tribes away captive. And so the Assyrians were the great power. Well, tonight in our study, the Assyrians, who were allied with the Egyptians, are going to be absorbed by the Babylonians. And that is hugely significant in our study of the scriptures, because, uh, you know, Babylon becomes really a major player. And, um, you know, we, well, we'll see it. We'll talk about it when we get to uh, Nebuchadnezzar in a little while. But the politics also change in Israel at this time. We have politics in our country. We have, we would say, Democrats and Republicans, or conservatives and liberals. And they had a very similar thing in Israel in their day. There were conservatives, people that wanted to keep things holy and keep things pure. And there were liberals that were saying, no, we need to embrace the ideas and the ideals of the surrounding nations. And there was this battle that went on, and it was more or less pro-God or anti-God, the conservative, liberal thinking of that day. Well, at this point, that changes a little bit. Everyone at this point becomes anti-God, except for maybe Jeremiah and some of the people that were close to him. But the basic consensus among the people was anti-God, but there was still a division. At this point, it was either pro-Babylon or anti-Babylon. That was the line that people were divided by. Some people heeded the message, and they said, we need to give in to this captivity and just allow the Babylonians to do their thing, and we'll give in to it. And there was another side that said, no way. We're Israel. We're God's chosen nation, and no one's ever going to take us out. And so the politics changed to divide along those lines. And so as we look at these last four kings, we're going to be some, see some of these kings that were pro-Babylon and gave in to it, and some of the kings that are anti-Babylon, and they rebel against it. And that will present two dynamics. Number one, it will determine the length of the reign. Because God has given Israel into the hand of the Babylonians. Therefore, if a king embraces Babylon, that king will have a longer reign, because God is in the Babylon thing. 
if the king is opposed to Babylon, then they'll have a very short reign because they'll be removed from the scene. And so it's a very crazy thing because God is pro-Babylon, which really goes against anything. If we were to have a quiz right now, how many people think that God is pro-Babylon? Most of us would say, no way. God would never do, but yes, he is. Because of the sin of Judah, God has given them into the hand of the Babylonians uh, in that whole thing. Now, as we get into the beginning part of this, so we pick up in verse 31 of chapter 23, we see uh, two kings, Jehoahaz and then Jehoiakim, and we see um, in this that this is just before Babylon becomes a great power. And so we pick up in verse 31, King Jehoahaz. It says that Jehoahaz, who was the son of Josiah, was 23 years old when he began to reign. And he reigned three months in Jerusalem. And his mother's name was Hamudal, the daughter of Jeremiah of Libna. Now, Jehoahaz is anti-Babylon. He is anti-God, certainly. He's not a godly man. We're going to see that he does wickedly in the eyes of the Lord. But he's not for this allegiance of those that would come in and take over and tax Israel in the way that they're being invaded and taxed. We also see that he's the daughter, or his, um, I'm sorry, his mother's name was Hamudal, the daughter of Jeremiah. That's not Jeremiah the prophet. Jeremiah the prophet remained unmarried. He was told to by the Lord. And so it's a different Jeremiah. But it says that he did that which was evil in the sight of the Lord according to all that his fathers had done. That would be Manasseh and Ammon. And it says that Pharaoh Necho, that's the same Pharaoh that killed Josiah, put him in bands at Riblah in the land of Hamath. Now, Niblah is north of Damascus in the area that was known as Syria. Now it's part of what's becoming the Babylonian Empire. But if you can picture Israel on a map, if you go to the furthest border north, and then you go north again, another 50 miles or so, you'll come to this area that's known as Riblah, which is going to keep coming up in our study because it's basically where King Nebuchadnezzar is going to set up his uh, base, his military base for his operation in this part of the world. And so because uh, Jehoahaz was against the taxation that Pharaoh Necho was bringing upon the land, he is removed from his place of authority after only three months uh, of reigning in the thing, uh, in the land. It says that he put, he took him to Riblah that he might not reign in Jerusalem and he put the land to a tribute of a hundred talents of silver and a talent of gold. And so because Jehoahaz doesn't want to pay those taxes and wants to try to hang on to Israel's sovereignty, he is then removed by Necho. Now Pharaoh Necho had killed Josiah at the end of the last chapter. Remember? Pharaoh Necho had moved out of Egypt and he had gone through the nation of Israel to face off against the king of Assyria. There was a conflict. And Josiah got mixed up in it in his zeal. And because Necho was in Israel's land up in the area of Megiddo, Josiah went up and said, no, I want to fight against you. And Necho said, back off. This is God's business. Go home. It's not your battle. And Josiah, in his zeal, wouldn't give in, and so Necho killed Josiah there. Now, what we realize is that not only did the godly influence die with Josiah, but also so did Israel's sovereignty. This is the last time 
with Josiah that Israel will remain sovereign. At this point, they are put to tax. They become a vassal of Egypt. Now, that's temporary because Babylon's about to take over. But for the first time in 120 years now, Israel is a vassal. They have to pay taxes. It's a high tax uh, to Pharaoh Necho. So Jehoahaz is removed from king. And then in verse 34, uh, it says that Pharaoh Necho made Eliakim, the son of Josiah, king in the place of Josiah, his father, and turned his name to Jehoiakim. Now, Jehoiakim is another son of Josiah, a brother of Jehoahaz, who's just been taken out of the land. Don't worry about the names. That's not that critical. What you do need to know is that this guy was pro-Egypt and will be pro-Babylon at least for a little while. Uh, really, what we learn about Jehoiakim is that he's pro-Jehoiakim. He realizes that in order to reign, he's got to give in to this taxation. And so he'll do it because he wants to reign and he wants his reign to last. But once it becomes inconvenient for him, we're going to see that he's going to rebel against it. He's a very selfish man, really a terrible human being. It says that uh, Jehoiakim, and he took Jehoahaz away, and he came to Egypt, and he died there. And Jehoiakim gave the silver and the gold to Pharaoh, but he taxed the land to give the money according to the commandment of Pharaoh. He exacted the silver and the gold from the people of the land of everyone according to his taxation to give it unto Pharaoh Necho. And so he basically taxes the rich in order to pay uh, off this king of Egypt, Pharaoh Necho. Now, what we learn as we study this man further throughout the prophecy of Jeremiah is that not only was he taxing the people to pay the tax, but he was also taxing the people to live in luxury. He was skimming off the top of it. Many of the prophecies that Jeremiah gives about the unfaithful shepherds of Israel are directed at Jehoiakim, who was using the money from the people in order to build himself ivory palaces and to live in uh, luxury and delicateness. And that's the, the kind of lifestyle that this man lived. And it says that Jehoiakim was 25 when, when he began to reign, and he reigned for 11 years in Jerusalem. And his mother's name was Zebuda. Great name, if any of you are looking for a female name. It says the daughter of Pedaiah of Rumah. And he did that which was evil in the sight of the Lord, according to all that his fathers had done. There was a point in the reign of uh, Jehoiakim where the prophet Jeremiah was given a message from God. And the message was concerning the coming of the king of Babylon. Now, Eliakim was very content to be paying the taxes to Egypt and to be living the life that he was living. And the threat of the king of Babylon overtaking Egypt and thus overtaking Israel was a threat to the luxury of Jehoiakim. So when Jeremiah brought this prophecy that was written in a scroll, and and it began to be read to Eliakim or to Jehoiakim, it says that Jehoiakim ordered that their mouths be shut and that the scroll be seized. And he took the words of the scroll and he cut it up with his penknife and he burned it in the fire that it was lost. What he thought he could do by keeping those words from being read to him and then having them burn in the fire as he thought that he could stop the hand of God and the judgment that he was going to bring upon Jehoiakim and upon Judah. But Jeremiah was released from that and he wrote the scroll again and it says with even more words than it had the first time. Listen, you can try to ignore the word of God. 
You can try to stop the processes of God or the ways of God or the statutes of God from coming to pass. But by tearing up the Bible or by ignoring it or being willingly ignorant, you can never stop the truth of God from prevailing because God's word will come to pass. Jesus said, heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will never pass away. In Peter, Peter talks about those in the last days that will scoff the second coming of Christ. And it says that the reason they scoff it is because they are willingly ignorant. Meaning that they ignore the truths about God out of their own will. They don't want God's truth in their life. And they don't want God to interrupt in their human existence or their lives. And so they ignore the word of God. And that's what Eliakim did. Jehoiakim, two names. But the result of it, it says he did evil in the sight of the Lord. And he couldn't stop the, 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 um, the hand of God. Because we see in 24 verse 1, it says that in his days, Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, came up. And Jehoiakim became his servant for three years. Then he turned and rebelled against him. So things change under Nebuchadnezzar. And it causes Jehoiakim to now want to rebel against it. Now this is interesting. Because this is the first time that King Nebuchadnezzar, the first great ruling monarch of Babylon, is mentioned here in the Bible. And it's important because he becomes a very central figure, not only in the Bible, but also in history itself. Babylon the Great, under King Nebuchadnezzar, was the first of its kind world-dominant empire. The Babylonian Empire stretched its wings over the whole world. Nebuchadnezzar was a one-world ruler or leader, if you would. And really what we see is that this moment where Nebuchadnezzar comes on the scene is really the apex of human history, or the fulcrum, if you will. will. Or like if you picture a, a seesaw in your mind. All the way up until this point, from Genesis 1-1, the world's been changing Kingdoms have come and gone. Empires have risen and fallen. But it's all been building to this point where Nebuchadnezzar is a world-dominant power. And from this point now, world history will begin to go downhill. And God, from the days of Nebuchadnezzar, spells out the rest of human history. You'll recall from the book of Daniel that Nebuchadnezzar had a dream. And in his dream, he saw a statue whose head was gold and whose chest and shoulders were silver, and whose belly was bronze, and whose legs were brass, and the feet were iron mixed with clay, and the ten toes of of clay. And, and, And so he saw an interpretation of this vision and of this dream. And so he found Daniel, and Daniel came to him and said, this is the interpretation, O king. God has shown you what he's going to do in the rest of world history. He said, you are the head of gold. And of your kingdom and greatness, there will never be anything to match up to it. It's the apex. It's the top. But after you, that was the word that burned in Nebuchadnezzar. He hated to hear that. After you, there will come another king who will have a strong kingdom, but even his silver is inferior to gold, so his kingdom will be somewhat inferior to yours. And then after him, there'll be another kingdom. And then after that, there'll be another kingdom that we split in two, just like the two legs of a man. And then ten toes. And what he was doing, he was highlighting world history. There would be Babylon. And then after that, there would be Persia, or the Persian Empire. And then after that, there would be the Grecian Empire, led by Alexander the Great. And then after that would be the Roman Empire, 
that would be in the days of Christ, that would dissolve, but then resurrect in the last days, and there would be ten kings, the ten toes. But basically, through Daniel, God was revealing what would take place throughout the rest of mankind's history, Nebuchadnezzar being the head. Now, Nebuchadnezzar rebelled against that, because if you read the next chapter after that dream, he made a statue of a man, but it was all gold. And he said, no, 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 there's not going to be any chest of silver or belly of brass or legs of uh, you know, iron and clay. I am the last final world ruler. That was the, the, the attitude that Nebuchadnezzar had. You know, He thought he was, but God is obviously going to be right in that argument. Nebuchadnezzar is not going to win that because God uh, always comes forth. But here's the interesting thing to me as I read this verse here in chapter 24, verse 1. It's this, is that Nebuchadnezzar, the one world ruler and the greatest ruler the world has seen thus far, was raised up and brought on the scene simultaneously with the judgment of Judah and the demise of their kingdom. Why is that significant? Because Nebuchadnezzar is a type or a shadow, a foreshadowing in the scripture of the Antichrist. The last days, one world ruler that will rise up over the whole world, a world that's unified, and their authority is given to one man. And the Bible teaches that that will happen at the time when God's judgment is ripe to come upon the world. When even things within the church and the kingdom of God get so rotten that God says there's no fruit left to fall from the tree, and at that time, the one world ruler will rise up. I see here a foreshadowing of what will take place in the last days. See, God prophesied through Moses the demise of the nation of Israel. Remember Deuteronomy? God said, hey, you're going to fail and you're going to fall and you're going to go into captivity. And we've seen that process played out all the way from the days of Joshua into Samuel and then through the kings to this point now where it's actually happening. The demise of the nation, the kingdom of God. At the same time, God's been working in the nations to bring them to this point where Nebuchadnezzar is ready to rule upon the scene. It's the same thing that's been happening since Jesus departed from this world 2,000 years ago. He said, the gates of hell will not prevail against my church, and they won't. But we also know that Jesus said, Paul said also, in the last days, the church would be in rough shape. Men would be lovers of themselves, lovers of money, boasters, proud, rude, blasphemers, disobedient to parents, unthankful, unholy, without natural affection, having a form of godliness but denying its power. And he painted this picture. Jesus said that because iniquity will abound, the love of many will wax cold. And he said that it's going to get to a point where there's nothing left, where even the kingdom of God, there's very little fruit to show. There may be outward show, but there's nothing inwardly real about it. And at the same time that the church is moving forward through history, God is also working in the nations, bringing it to a point, bringing it to an apex where there will be one world ruler and there will be one world government and one world currency and one world religion. And it's so interesting to sit where we sit now and to see all of that taking shape before our eyes. An interesting foreshadowing that we see taking place here with Nebuchadnezzar coming on the scene. Now, With Nebuchadnezzar's arrival here in chapter 24, verse 1, we have the first of three deportations. Nebuchadnezzar is going to make three incursions into the land of Israel. In this first incursion, he is going to carry away out of Israel Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, or as you may otherwise know them, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. 
it is now at this time right here that Daniel is carried away captive into Israel. If you read Daniel chapter 1, verses 1 and 2, Daniel says, the author of the book himself, he says, in the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, came Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, into Jerusalem to besiege it. So that's this besiegement right now. And the Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand with part of the vessels. Notice that word part, because Nebuchadnezzar's not done. He'll be back. Of the vessels of the house of God, which he carried into the land of Shinar, to the house of his God, and he brought the vessels into the treasure house of his God. Now you can go on and read chapter 1, and Daniel himself testifies and says that it was at that time that I was taken out of Judah, and I became a counselor in Nebuchadnezzar's court. And that's what Daniel became. God placed Daniel into the courts of Nebuchadnezzar in this first of three uh, besiegements. Now we see that here that Eliakim, or I'm sorry, Jehoiakim, rebels against the judgment that God has ordained. It says that he turned and he rebelled against him. Watch what happens, verse 2. And so the Lord sent against him bands of the Chaldees and bands of the Syrians and bands of the Moabites and bands of the children of Ammon and sent them against Judah to destroy it according to the word of the Lord, which he spoke by his servants, the prophets. Listen, God had ordained judgment to fall upon Israel. Israel, through Jehoiakim, rebels against that judgment and says, we're not going to give in, we're not going to submit. So notice what God does. God raises up judgment to come from multiple other directions. See, you cannot go against God and think that you're going to get away. And listen, if God has ordained something in your life right now that's a correction, that's a chastisement because he's seeking to do something within your life, don't rebel against it. Surrender to it. Submit to it. Because if you kick against it and try to fix the thing that God is doing in your life to try to fix you, then God's going to have to bring another fix to fix what he was initially trying to fix When you sought to fix God's original fix, do you understand? It gets real complicated. But God is ultimately going to have his way within our lives. And we see that he does that here. He says, I don't care what Nebuchadnezzar wants to do. I'm not giving in. And so God says, oh, no, watch this. Arrows from the west, arrows from the north, arrows from the south. Verse 3, surely at the commandment of the Lord, this came upon Judah, to remove them out of his sight for the sins of Manasseh according to all that he did. And also for the innocent blood that he shed, for he filled Jerusalem with innocent blood, which the Lord would not pardon. Now that's an interesting phrase to come from the heart of God, isn't it? That he would not pardon it. Now why is it that God would not pardon the sins that Manasseh brought upon the nation? Here's why. Because forgiveness is always conditioned on repentance. That is, That God won't forgive if we won't repent. He calls us to turn away from our sins. And that's an important concept. Because there's a lot of people today that believe that God is just going to forgive everyone. That everyone just gets a free pass. And no matter what you've done, or the way that you live, or how whether you've honored God with your life or not, everyone in the end ultimately will end up in heaven and God's just going to forgive everyone. The atonement of Christ was good enough to cover it all. No, listen. He calls us to repent. He says, look, this sin that you've lived in is what put my son on the cross. And the wrath that he incurred through that judgment 
is the wrath that you paid for or you purchased with your behavior. And he calls us to turn away from that sin. And God doesn't pardon where we don't repent. And so pardon is always conditioned on repentance. Now the rest of the acts of Jehoiakim and all that he did, are they not written in the book of the Chronicles of the kings of Judah? So Jehoiakim slept with his fathers, and now, this is just to make it easy for you, Jehoiachin, his son, reigned in his stead. Now Jehoiachin is anti-Babylon. He is not going to surrender to what God is going to do, and thus we'll see that he has a very short reign. And the king of Egypt came not again any more out of his land, for the king of Babylon had taken from the river of Egypt, that's not the Nile, that's the brook of Egypt, it's kind of uh, north uh, east a little bit from the, the Nile, unto the Euphrates, all that pertained to the king of Egypt. Jehoiachin was 18 years old when he began to reign, and he reigned in Jerusalem for three months. And his mother's name was Nehushta, the daughter of Elnathan of Jerusalem. And he did that which was evil in the sight of the Lord according to all that his father had done. And at that time, the servants of Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came up against Jerusalem and the city uh, now was um, besieged. And so Jehoiakim, Chin, again, rebels against the ministry and message of Jeremiah. And thus, he also rebels against the will of Nebuchadnezzar, which is ultimately the will of God, which then leads to Nebuchadnezzar uh, in his second besiegement. And so this is the second deportation of the three uh, that Nebuchadnezzar now begins. And it's in this second deportation that Ezekiel, the prophet, is also carried away. So Daniel carried away in the first one, placed in the palace. Ezekiel carried away in the second deportation. He is placed amongst the people. Oh, God is beginning to, he's placing people somewhere. He's doing something. It says that Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, came against the city and his servants did besiege it. And Jehoiachin, the king of Judah, went out to the king of Babylon, he and his mother and his servants and his princes and his officers. And the king of Babylon took him in the eighth year of his reign. And he carried out thence all the treasures of the house of the Lord and the treasures of the king's house. And he cut in pieces all the vessels of gold which Solomon, king of Israel, had made in the temple of the Lord, as the Lord had said. And he carried away all Jerusalem and all the princes and all the mighty men of valor, even 10,000 captives, and all the craftsmen and smiths. None remained except for the poorest sort of the people of the land. And he carried away Jehoiachin to Babylon and the king's mother and the king's wives uh, and his officers and the mighty of the land. Those carried he into captivity from Jerusalem to Babylon and all the men of might, even 7,000 and craftsmen and smiths, a thousand, all that were strong and apt for war, even them, the king of Babylon, brought captive to Babylon. And so what he does here now is he takes everyone else who's got any form of skill at all. In his first deportation, he took the cream of the crop, the king's seed, Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, Azariah, others like them, placed them in the palace to be trained up as counselors and wise men of Babylon. But now in the second deportation, he takes the next tier of quality of people, 
All of those that had any skill, whether it was military or in craft or in uh, artisan work, anything that they could do, he took them now to build his kingdom, and he weakened Israel to a point where only those that remained were the poor of the land, those that were indefensible and couldn't stand up for themselves. And now in his place, it says that king, the king of Babylon made Mataniah his father's brother. So the uncle of Jehoiachin. The king in his place, and he changed his name to Zedekiah. And so now we come, and Zedekiah is the last king of Judah. He will be the last one that will reign before they are ultimately destroyed and carried completely into captivity. But an interesting thing about this man, Zedekiah, is that he's not the son of Jehoiachin. Rather, he's the uncle of Jehoiachin. Now, that's a significant thing, and it's very interesting. First of all, he's pro-Babylon. He wouldn't have been placed there by Nebuchadnezzar unless he had sworn an oath to Nebuchadnezzar that he would pay the taxes and tow the line that the king of Babylon, Nebuchadnezzar, wanted him to tow. So this is a pro-Babylonian king, at least for the first part of his reign. But the other interesting thing about Zedekiah is that he's not a descendant of Jehoiachin. Why is that interesting? Because Jehoiachin was so wicked and he was so obstinate against God that God made a declaration concerning the descendants of Jehoiachin. It's in Jeremiah chapter 22, verse 30. I think it's up on the screen. He just simply said that he will never have a descendant that will sit upon the throne of his father David. Now, the reason that's so amazing is because at this point, there was a smile on Satan's face. And here's why. Because God promised David that he would never lack to have a descendant upon the throne until the day that Jesus would come and also sit upon that throne. That was the promise that God gave through the prophet Nathan to David in 2 Samuel chapter 7. I'm going to build you a house, God said to David, and you will never cease to have a descendant sit upon the throne. Well, here, Satan has so corrupted the royal lineage to the point where God says, I can't even stand to have one of your descendants sit upon the throne. And Satan thinks, "Ah, I've done it. I've caused God to go against his promise and against his word. I've ruined the line. I've subverted the plan of God. The Messiah will never come. We learn an interesting thing when we read the genealogies of Jesus given in Matthew's gospel and in Luke's gospel. In Matthew's gospel, the genealogy of Jesus is given from David down to Joseph, the husband of Mary. And Joseph is a direct descendant of Jehoiachin, making Jesus technically a legal heir to the throne. But wait a minute. Jesus was not the blood descendant of Joseph. Luke's gospel gives us Mary's genealogy. And Mary was also a descendant of King David, But the line of Mary did not descend through the royal line of Jehoiachin. It came down a different way. And thus Jesus was both legally heir to the throne of David, coming through the line of Jehoiachin, but yet not of his blood. And he was also uh, a blood descendant of David through the lineage of Mary. You see how God can never be circumvented? See, saying, oh, I got him here. This is it. No, God planned a virgin birth. 
And through the virgin birth, God would provide that he would have the legal right to be called the son of David. And he would also be the bloodline through Jehoiakim, the royal seed. But he would also be uh, the interesting thing that took place uh, through this placing of Zedekiah as the, the king in place of Jehoiachin. So Zedekiah was 21 years old when he began to reign. And he reigned 11 years in Jerusalem. And his mother's name was Hamudo, the daughter of Jeremiah of Libna. Again, not the Jeremiah from Jeremiah. And he did that which was evil in the sight of the Lord, according to all that Jehoiakim had done. For through the anger of the Lord, it came to pass in Jerusalem and Judah, until he had cast them out from his presence, that Zedekiah rebelled against the king of Babylon. Now again, this is interesting, and here's why. Because in order to secure this position of king, Zedekiah had to make an oath to Nebuchadnezzar that he wouldn't rebel against him, but that he would continue. Now, both Jeremiah and Ezekiel pled, pleaded, what's the proper word there? Urged Zedekiah not to rebel against this oath. They said, listen, this is of God. The best thing for us is if you just keep your oath that you made to Nebuchadnezzar. But the Bible says here that God was ready to destroy Judah. Thus, God moved him to break the oath and to rebel against Nebuchadnezzar, which now brings in the third besiegement or the third deportation. Now Nebuchadnezzar has to come back for the third time, and he's not happy. It says that it came to pass in the ninth year of his reign, in the tenth month and in the tenth day of the month, that Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, came. He and all his host against Jerusalem and pitched against it, and they built forts against it round about. And the city was besieged until the 11th year of Zedekiah. So a year and a half now, the Babylonian army has surrounded the city. No one comes in, no one goes out. That means no food comes in, no water comes in, and the people are starved into a place of surrender. And it says that on the ninth day of the fourth month, the famine prevailed in the city, and there was no bread for the people of the land. And the city was broken up and all the men of war fled by night by the way of the gate between two walls, which is by the king's garden. Now the Chaldees, that's the Babylonian people, were against uh, the city round about. And the king went the way toward the plain. And the army of the Chaldees pursued after the king and overtook him in the plains of Jericho. And all his army were scattered from him. So they took the king and they brought him up to the king of Babylon, to Riblah. That's the second time we've seen Riblah, the the, the base up north of Damascus. And they gave judgment upon him, and they slew the sons of Zedekiah before his eyes, and they put out the eyes of Zedekiah and bound him with fetters of brass, and they carried him to Babylon. Do you recognize that the world plays hardball? I mean, this isn't a game. You know, when we talk about the things and we we recognize and realize the things that are going on in the world, I think oftentimes that we're naive to the the power lust that exists in world politics. I mean, there's no messing around when it comes to these things. Why is it that they put out Zedekiah's eyes? Here's why. Because they wanted the last thing that he saw was the death of his sons. That the last thing that would be imprinted upon his mind was that his sons would be killed. And then his own eyes would be put out. Now again, there's a remarkable prophecy that's attached to this. Because Jeremiah, in Jeremiah chapter 32, verse 4, Jeremiah says this concerning Zedekiah. 
It says that Zedekiah, the king of Judah, shall not escape out of the hand of the Chaldeans, but shall surely be delivered into the hand of the king of Babylon and shall speak with him mouth to mouth and his eyes shall behold his eyes. So it was prophesied that Zedekiah would see Nebuchadnezzar face to face and talk with him. That happened at Riblah, just according to what we just read. But there's a second prophecy concerning Zedekiah. And that was given by Ezekiel in Ezekiel chapter 12, verse 13. Ezekiel says this. He says, my net also will I spread upon him and he, Zedekiah, shall be taken in my snare and I will bring him to Babylon to the land of the Chaldeans. Yet shall he not see it, though he shall die there. See, it was prophesied that Zedekiah would both see Nebuchadnezzar face to face and be in Babylon, though he would not see Babylon. How did that happen? Well, he saw Nebuchadnezzar in Riblah, and then his eyes were put out, and he was carried to Babylon. He was taken there, but he didn't see it. Again, the word of God being fulfilled perfectly according as it was given. And so he's carried to Babylon. Now, in these verses, verses 8 through 21, we have the final destruction of Jerusalem. It says that in the fifth month, On the seventh day of the month, which is the 19th year of King Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, came Nebuzaradan, the captain of the guard, a servant of the king of Babylon, unto Jerusalem. And he burnt the house of the Lord and the king's house and all the houses of Jerusalem and every great man's house or rich man's house burnt he with fire. And all the army of the Chaldees that were with the captain of the guard broke down the walls of Jerusalem round about. Now, this is remarkable. We read it in a couple of verses, but you think about the splendor and the glory of Solomon's temple and all that went into it and all that it represented and all of the history and the presence of God descending upon it and the promises that were made by God to the people and the oaths that were made of the people to God and the blessing that God poured out on Israel because of that house. And God said, I'll write my name there. And now we see that because of their sin, That temple that was their security and their strength is now burned to the ground. It's destroyed completely. The king's palace is decimated. The walls of the city are torn down. The rich people's homes along the wall are are broken down. Now the rest of the people that were left in the city and the fugitives that fell away to the king of Babylon with the remnant of the multitude, dude Nebuzaradan, the captain of the guard, carried away. But the captain of the guard left of the poor of the land to be vine dressers and husbandmen. Now, this is interesting. Jeremiah, the prophet, had been imprisoned by the kings that he delivered his message to. And up to this point, Jeremiah had been in prison. And he was in prison at the time that Nebuzaradan had come in to destroy Jerusalem. But it tells us in Jeremiah that when Nebuzaradan came to Jeremiah and talked with him, he let him go. He took his chains off and he said, go wherever it is that you're going to go. And so Jeremiah actually is going to live on through this thing. God gives him favor. Um, But here's the amazing thing. Jeremiah became God's voice to the people that remained in the land. Oh, how interesting. He's got Daniel in the palace. He's got Ezekiel amongst the captives. And now he has Jeremiah amongst the people that remain in Egypt. God always leaving himself a voice. It says, the, uh, in, it says that the pillars of brass that were in the house of the Lord and the bases and the brazen sea that were in the house of the Lord, 
that the Chaldees break in pieces and carried the brass of them to Babylon. And the pots and the shovels and the snuffers and the spoons, starting to sound like a Dr. Seuss book, isn't it? And all the vessels of brass wherewith they ministered took their way. And the firepans and the bowls and such things that were of gold in gold and of silver in silver, the captain of the guard took away. The two pillars, one sea and the bases which Solomon had made for the house of the Lord, the brass of all these vessels was without weight, unmeasurable. The height of the one pillar was 18 cubits. That's 24 feet. And the catheter upon it was brass. And the height of the catheter was three cubits, four and a half feet. And the wreathen work and the pomegranates upon the catheter round about all of the brass. And like unto these had the second pillar with wreathen work. Remember the two pillars that Solomon had placed up at the, at the entering of the temple? And they were labeled. One was Boaz and the other was Yaquin. They meant to establish and strengthen. The place and the pillars, the place where God would establish and strengthen and be the pillar for his people. We see that being taken down, torn down now. God's power to establish and strengthen, eliminated by the people's self-will and their stubbornness and giving themselves to their iniquity. And the captain of the guard took Sariah, the chief priest, and Zephaniah, the second priest, and the three keepers of the door. And out of the city he took an officer that was set over the men of war. And five men of them that were in the king's presence, which were found in the city, and the principal scribe of the host, which mustered the people of the land, and threescore, sixty men of the people of the land that were found in the city. And Nebuzaradan, captain of the guard, took these, and he brought them to the king of Babylon, to Riblah. And the king of Babylon smote them and slew them at Riblah in the land of Hamath. So, and here's the finality of it, Judah was carried away out of their land. And the reason why Judah was carried away out of their land was because of their idolatry. Now God took them out of their land and he placed them in Babylon. Now Babylon was idol central. It was the origin or the beginning place of all of the idols that reigned the world in those days, all the way since the times of Nimrod, way back in the days of antiquity. What God did here is that he took the will and the desire of the people to worship their idols, and he gave them over to it. He said, if you want idols, I'm going to give you idols until you've got idols coming out your ears. And if you want to live the life that worshiping those idols is going to bring to you, I'm going to bring you right into the thick of it until you can't even stand to be around another idol. And you know what's amazing? Is that for 70 years, the people of Israel are going to be in Babylon amongst all of this idolatry. But when they come back, and they will come back, because God's going to bring them back, they never struggle with idolatry again. That never becomes an issue. They are cured through the time that they spend in the city of idols in Babylon. That's something that God does in the lives of people even today. When someone turns their feet aside from the ways of God, and they begin to go after an idol in their life, and every single one of us has something in our flesh that we're attracted to, something that can allure us and attract our attention. And when God sees a person that's continually going after that thing that will ultimately destroy them, there comes a point sometimes where they will cross a line and God will give them over into the hands of that idol. He'll say, okay, you want to worship money? Or you want to worship sexual pleasure? Or you want to worship 
drugs or chemicals, or if you want to worship, and, and he'll say, then do it. And he'll give them completely over until they have no control and they're just thrown into the hands of that, that sin or that idol and its power completely. And then that person will go down that path for a year or two years and they'll, they'll watch their life just go into a tailspin and they'll watch their life just disintegrate and they'll watch everything good just evaporate as the power of that sin just desecrates them completely. And then they'll come to a point where God in his mercy will reach back into that life and he'll say, are you done yet? The person says, God, help. Help. God draws that person back and he sets them again back in his presence. And that person is never again touched by the power of that idol because they recognize that there's no good that comes from it, and they can testify to the destruction that that idol brings, not just upon their life, but upon any person's life that gives themselves to that thing or that decides to go down that road. And that's exactly what God does with Judah. You want idols? You can have them. You'll have them until they're coming out your nose, and then you'll never want them again. And as for the people that remained in the land of Judah whom Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, had left, even over them, he made Gedaliah, the son of Ahikam, the son of Shaphan, ruler. Now notice that he's not a king. He's a governor. Now the amazing thing about this man, Gedaliah, is that he was friends with Jeremiah. He was close to Jeremiah, meaning that he was absolutely pro-Babylon in his stance. And that's how he would remain. He recognized and understood that this was God's will and God's plan and that there was no way to get around it. And so he could be trusted and he was put into this place uh, of authority. Uh, Another interesting thing, it says in Jeremiah that when Jeremiah was released from prison by Nebuzaradan and he was allowed to go wherever he wanted, that Jeremiah went to Gedaliah, that that's where he lived. He lived in close proximity to Gedaliah, um, friends with him there. But we'll see that things didn't work out so well for Gedaliah either. And it says that when all the captains of the armies, they and their men, heard that the king of Babylon had made Gedaliah governor, there came to Gedaliah, to Mizpah, even Ishmael, the son of Nathaniah, and Johanan, the son of Kariah, and Saraiah, the son of Tanhumath, and, oh goodness, the Netophathite, and Jeazaniah, the son of uh, Maacathite, and they and their men, and Gedaliah sware to them and to their men and said unto them, Fear not to be the servants of the Chaldees. Dwell in the land and serve the king of Babylon, and it shall be well with you. And it would have, because that was the word of the Lord. Give in to this thing and you'll prosper. You'll do well in this whole thing. But it came to pass in the seventh month, that Ishmael, the son of Nethaniah, the son of Elishama, of the seed royal, came. And ten men with him, and smote Gedaliah, that he died. And the Jews and the Chaldees that were with him at Mizpah, and all the people, both small and great, and the captains of the armies, arose and came to Egypt, for they were afraid of the Chaldees. So those that remained, including Jeremiah, left at this time and went to Egypt. And then this final vignette, it says that it came to pass in the seven and thirtieth year of the captivity of Jehoiachin, the king of Judah. And in the twelfth month, on the seventh and twentieth day of the month, that evil Merodach, king of Babylon, don't you love that name? 
boy name. Now you've gotten a girl name and a boy name tonight. Evil Merodach, if you're looking for a boy name. This is actually the son of King Nebuchadnezzar. It says, in, uh, in the year that he did begin to reign, did lift up the head of Jehoiachin, the king of Judah, out of prison. So Jehoiachin, the one who declared by God he's going to be childless, he was carried away a prisoner for 37 years in Babylon. Now, evil Merodach takes over the, the control of the throne and he's removed from the prison. And it says that he spoke kindly to him and he set his throne above the throne of the kings that were with him in Babylon. And they changed his prison garments and he did eat bread continually before him all the days of his life. And his allowance was a continual allowance given him of the king a daily rate for every day all the days of his life. And that's where the story ends. Now, why does God end with this story? Here's why. It's a story of hope. And any time that God is involved in something, no matter how dark it might seem, even if it's the judgment of God, when God's involved, there's always hope. There's always hope. What circumstance might you be facing here tonight? And you look at the thing, and you might even be in something that you say, this is my own fault. This is because of something that I've done. I've sown to the wind, and now I'm reaping the whirlwind. I've laid out this sandwich before me, and now I have to eat it. And that's what I'm going through right now. But listen, whatever circumstance you're in as a child of God, if you invite God into that circumstance, there is always hope within that circumstance because our God is a God of hope, and he's a God that makes beautiful things out of ashes. And so we come to the end of Second Kings and the closing points for our study and really for the book as we wrap this all up is first of all this, concerning the consequences of sin. Embrace them and it will be well with you. To rebel against what God is seeking to fix within our lives is to rebel against the will of God. And that's not a good thing, not ever. Second of all, concerns the path that we're standing in and the path and the decisions that we make for our lives. In Jeremiah chapter 6, verse 15, Jeremiah told the people this. He says, were they ashamed when they had committed abomination? No, they were not at all ashamed. Neither could they blush. Therefore, they shall fall among them that fall. And at the time that I visit them, they shall be cast down, says the Lord. Thus says the Lord. And here's the message. Stand ye in the ways and see. To stand just means to stop. Just stop for one minute. And if I could just ask you right now, wherever you are in your life, if you could remove yourself 500 miles from your life right now and just look at it from an eagle eye perspective and just think about the path that you're on for one minute, just stop right in the path that you're on today, the direction that your life is facing, the things that you're going after, the priorities that you have, the things that are important to you. If you could just stop right now and consider the road that you're on. He says, stand in the way and see, look, and then ask for the old paths. Where is the good way? And walk in it, and you will find rest for your souls. But they said, we will not walk therein. And I think tonight as we come to the end of this study of 2 Kings and we consider the path that first Israel and then Judah decided to take, 
If maybe at some point along that way they had just stopped and said, what road am I on right now? The decisions that I'm making or the direction that I'm going, the things that I'm giving myself to, where does this lead in the end? And if they had just stopped to consider that for one minute, they might have just said, God, give us the old paths. Take me off of the broad road that leads to destruction and put me again on the narrow way that leads to life. Take away this broad view look that I have, this broad lens view of life that just is so inclusive. And God, all these things that I just allow within my life, God, I see the end of those things as I consider what you say. And I consider that you've set before me life and death, blessing and cursing. And God, I choose life. And would you give me the old path, God? The idols that maybe aren't erected in my home, but they're erected in my heart. There's things that, Lord, that are affections that I have in me, things that yet live inside that you said long ago to crucify. Things that your son hung on a cross to die for. That the strength of that sin would be broken and the sting of that death would be defeated. Lord, I'm in a path right now that needs to change. Lord, would you give me the old path? I see what happens at the end of this road. And it's foolish for me to think that the outcome for me is going to be different than it was for so many that have been destroyed in this way. Lord, could I tonight find the strength to repent? Because with repentance always comes pardon. Stand in the way and see. And ask for the old paths wherein is the good way and you'll find rest for your souls. I believe that the great lesson of Second Kings, if we were to take the whole thing and just encapsulate it into one word, we could just say right over the whole thing, obedience. That if we would just look to the Lord and see that the things that he says to us, he's not saying so that we would be grieved or frustrated or vexed or because he's a party killer or he wants to rob us of a good time. We would say, God, your will towards me is good and perfect. And if I would just walk in the ways that you've set out before me, Lord, it will be good for me. It's a lesson that we see over and over and over again in the scripture. But you know why we see it over and over and over again in the scripture? Because we need to hear it over and over and over again. Because of the inclination of our hearts. May God give us wisdom to follow his ways and his will. In Jesus' name. Father, we thank you tonight, Lord, for the scripture that's before us. We thank you for your testimonies that are laced, first of all, with your truth. So many times tonight, Lord, we heard that you said and then you did. And what you say, Lord, we know that you will always do. But not just your truth, Lord, we also see your grace and your mercy, and your patience, and your love, laced so carefully into the text, Lord. And Father, for each one of us that's here tonight, as we consider, Lord, what your word says, even about the days that we live in, and as we watch world political structures being aligned and formed, as we see the demise of the church and of your influence within the world, Lord, would you give us the grace to see where we fit into all of that? 
I think, Father, of the days of Elijah, where he thought he was the only one. And yet there were 7,000 that hadn't bent their knees to Baal. But he didn't even know it. They were invisible. But then there was the days of Josiah, where there was multiplied thousands of people that would stand up and profess you. But you saw in the heart that there was really only one. Lord, I pray right now as each one of us are here before you and our hearts are laid open before the eyes that see all things. Lord, what do you see in us? Lord, are we yours? Do we belong to you? Or do we just profess with our mouth? We pray tonight, Lord, that you would search us. We pray, Lord, that whatever you see in us, you would expose it and that you would give us the old paths, the good way that leads to life. May your will be done, Lord. May our hearts be completely devoted to you. In Jesus' name, amen.